0: healthcare patient experience we've all been to the doctor we've been to the emergency room and it sucks i was in the emergency room myself just 2 days ago and i can't tell you how bad the patient experience was what are we going to do about patient experience today and today on episode 265 of CXO talk we are talking with two folks who know about pharmaceutical industry who know about patient experience, innovation, and what we can do about it? I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. Before we begin, I want to say thank you to Livestream for being a great video streaming partner to CXO Talk. If you go to livestream.com/cxotalk, they'll give you a discount on their plans. Those guys, thank you Livestream for supporting us. You guys are great. Without further ado, let's introduce our two amazing guests. And to begin, Craig Lipset from Pfizer Pharmaceutical. How are you? Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here as well. So,
0: Craig, uh, tell us about Pfizer. I think we all know generally what Pfizer does, but tell us uh, briefly about Pfizer and, and tell us about your role.
1: Sure. Pfizer is a 150 uh, year old biopharmaceutical company based in New York City. Most people know of Pfizer for some of the different brand names, whether it's oncology medicines or rare disease medicines or some of the consumer products like Advil um, or Chapstick, but it's a, it's a large organization. We make 74 billion doses of medicine every year that get distributed across 125 countries around the world. So There's a lot going on in a company like Pfizer. It's, it's what we would call a large integrated pharmaceutical uh, company. And so, Pfizer has research laboratories, we have a development organization, commercial and sales manufacturing, a a pretty wide range. But I, I, I look after innovation for the development side of Pfizer, where we run the clinical trials where we take those new medicines, those molecules that are coming out of the laboratory, and we start to test them to understand efficacy and safety so that we can bring those to market. Um, and uh, and ensure that uh, patients are getting the the impact that they're looking for.
0: Did I catch that right? You said you released seventy five is it seventy five billion
1: billion with a B doses of medicine around the world every single year. It's mind boggling, isn't it?
0: It is genuinely mind boggling. Well, thanks so much for being here on CXO Talk. Our second guest is Michael De Palma, who is with IQVIA and it's a name that you probably don't know but if you were in healthcare if you're in the, if you're in the healthcare business you probably do know their name michael de palma how are you thanks for being here I'm
2: very well michael thank you very much for having me
0: so tell us about IQVIA and tell us about your role
2: sure uh so icuvia is an interesting animal in that uh, that that brand that entity didn't exist before a few weeks ago uh, you may have known us by our prior names which were quintiles or IMS health so IQV is the birth of a new organization that bridges both of those sort of uh, those organizations one being clinically focused the largest contract research organization in the world the other being IMS health, which is very much marketing data and technology focused so we call ourselves a human data science company we are one of if not the largest provider of data technology and services to the life sciences industry
0: thank you so much Michael uh, so this issue of being patient centric, you know, we all we all hear the term being customer centric, but when we talk about patient centric and patient experience, what really does that mean? And and maybe Craig, I'll ask you to jump in and start start this conversation with that background.
1: You know, I think that um, there are a lot of buzzwords that all of our different industries face, and right now, in many ways, patient centricity, which has been a buzzword, is actually starting to come into action. Um, It's easy to say that we do things for patients. It's kind of like saying I love puppies and babies, and of course I'm going to do the right thing for patients, but do you really, in terms of the the level of complexity that you've created for people? I work on on the, the clinical trials that we've got going on here at Pfizer, and when you look at the historical amount of burden to patients to find a trial, to participate in a trial, to keep coming in and out, the amount of data that was extracted from patients, all of that, it makes it very hard to say that the historical approach for running these studies is very patient-centric. And I think it's really embodied in the word subject. Uh, when you look at most of the studies that are performed around the world, the majority still use that term subject, which has a very hierarchical term. And to me, it implies the almost like a subject that you're that you're trying to paint. You're drawing data out of it and you're giving very little in return. As compared with a more contemporary view of looking at at patients as
2: participants in the process,
0: Michael, I know you have thoughts on this. <laughs>
2: I have a lot of thoughts on this. So I, I, let me begin by by telling you a little bit about what I do with IQVIA because I, I think it plays into this. So I run digital transformation and partnerships at IQVIA, and what that means is. How do we find new ways to solve old challenges? Or quite frankly, how do we use technology or new methods to create solutions for challenges we haven't yet really experienced, but we kind of see coming down the pike? And this patient experience conversation, and and Craig and I have talked about this a whole bunch, is one of those funny things. And we had a conversation earlier, words matter. And we use the word subject. And it's funny, actually, Craig, you use the word data extracted. From patients, right? That's a really funny word. We extract data from patients, um, and it's 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 really unnerving to kind of think about it that way. So the question is: is Are you a human? Are you a patient? Are you a subject? Are you a consumer? As it turns out, you're all of those things, and so this the 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 nomenclature matters, and it also affects, I think, the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we think about the people that we're trying to serve. So uh, when we get into that sort of that that area, and we talk about subjects, we talk about data. The question is is, how can we, as an industry, create an environment where human beings feel much more comfortable and confident in receiving care, in engaging with care, in sharing information, uh, and creating that sort of twenty first century environment?
0: I guess that's the question, right what what do we do, and there's there are so many dimensions to this, right? There's technology, there's politics, there's regulation, there's the drug development process. so uh, Craig, how how do we solve this problem? How about how about if we place this problem right now at your feet to solve?
1: You're placing a pretty big problem because the numbers don't look good, right? We today uh, we we rely on Tufts University to generate and track a lot of data around the time and the cost and the complexity of drug development. Two point six billion dollars, seven plus years of time, and so you're starting from a pretty rough place when then you start to layer on other factors. Emerging science, like precision medicine, is actually making the markets for most medicines smaller rather than larger. And Yet, these clinical trials don't scale for small studies very well. They're still pretty expensive. Even if you're studying a small number of patients, you have a lot of infrastructure that you still have to set up and manage. The technology is generating more and more data. and Together, these studies are only getting more complex rather than more simple. And so, these, these different environmental factors are actually conspiring to make it harder rather than easier. And even in today's climate, politically, where we're in something of an era around deregulation, remember that that drug development cycle time, 6, 7, 10 years, that's going to go through multiple administrations. And so, there is still a tendency for most drug developers to try to err on the cautious side. And in doing that, it it only it only amplifies this challenge around the time and the cost and complexity of drug development today. Absolutely.
0: So the fundamental, let me see if this is correct. The fundamental problem then is you've got this kind of clash of the the titans, if you will, the titans of patient expectations, government uh, government policy, the science of. All of this, uh, the need for cost containment, and yet it's very expensive to de- to develop drugs. C- drugs, so you've got this this clashing of mutually opposed forces. Is that a, is that a reasonable way to describe it, Michael?
2: I, I think it's it's an issue of complexity. I think what you're what you what Craig's describing is something we also see in education, right? I saw this when my kids went away to school. You've got these twenty first century individuals. Um, sort of engaging with this 20th century model, you know, to support 19th century ideas about what it is we're doing, right? And so, it's, that's where there's a challenge. We've got more data than ever before. We've got more ways that we can touch people than ever before, uh, but we're still supporting that same existing model. Um, and again, Craig and I had a conversation around this. There are so many offshoots and components that occur and that exist in this world today that didn't exist in this model earlier in the 20th century or even earlier in this century, quite frankly. The idea of social, the idea that we can share information peer-to-peer without going through sort of an intermediary component, all these things are complexities that the model in and of itself isn't necessarily ready for yet. So, A lot of what we do is try to figure out, okay, so as this technology becomes available to everyone, not just us as an industry, but also the individual consumers, patients, humans, uh, how does that impact what we do? How can that be leveraged for good, and how can we overcome any of the potential challenges?
0: We have a question from uh, Twitter from Scott Weitzman, who's asking about the role of changing patient expectations. Where does that come into the technology decisions? Uh, any thoughts on that?
1: I think that um, patients today are, in in many ways, amazingly aligned to what industry would have would have always wished for. There's urgency. There's engagement. Patients are activated. The problem is they've leapt past industry in so many ways. Their urgency is now creating a pull uh, for for industry, and the industry is trying to to rush to keep up. When we're looking at the technologies that we're including in these programs today, um, I'm seeing this great convergence of of research teams that are increasingly engaging with patients very early in the process. They want to talk to patients, get input into the best study designs, input into the endpoints that matter most to patients. And it's a great time because then, on the other side, when we have new and emerging technologies, you mash those two environments together. And so it's no longer a case of just a researcher sitting in one of our laboratories in an ivory tower envisioning what endpoints matter most to patients and grabbing and exciting a new technology. But increasingly, we're doing that together with patients and we're sitting together evaluating what endpoints matter most and then what technologies can we bring to bear to to, to help us to measure that. Uh, That's where we're increasingly pulling in sensors, wearables, other environmental types of data that we can bring in and looking at intelligent algorithms that can help us in terms of making sense out of all that data.
2: So one of the things that that Craig's touching on is this concept of collaboration, and it's a really funny thing because everybody uses the word, um, but when we come to healthcare, patients were the one group that were sort of left out. They were the group that kind of, we said, sat in the center, but basically were preyed upon, right? They didn't really have a very good understanding of their health. They don't have a good understanding of therapies. They don't have a really good understanding of their own data, what it means, what to do with it, who has it, where it goes, where it sits, Um, and so when we talk about collaboration, the first thing is to to look at these human beings, right? Patients, patients are just sick humans, right? It's a temporary thing, we hope, and they are consumers. They have certain expectations about the way the world works, about what they can expect. Um, you know, if you look at the the way that collaboration and access and democratization has occurred in places like finance, right, and education, and all these other areas, healthcare still lags a bit, and we're still working on that. But there are some really, really, I think, encouraging signs when you, I looked at some recent data. you know, 60% of, of patients say that they're more than willing to have a video consultation with their healthcare provider. 88% of them said that they were absolutely willing to share their health data if it helped accelerate cures, right? So I look at that and I say, all right, there's a little bit of a disconnect there because A, are we doing that? B, are we doing that the way that these consumers understand that we're doing that, Right. And I think that's one of those really cool opportunities for us. And one of the things I think you'll see from this, by the way, is a whole new set of industries around serving these humans, these patients, around engaging with their own health, engaging with their own healthcare, be it in clinical trials or other.
1: You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna build on that and share uh, and share a recent example. Um, We have uh, a number of different research programs in 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 uh, in immunology and inflammation, and some of those are are looking to impact. for patients with lupus. The, the endpoints that we, that we use in research studies in lupus are pretty inadequate. They're inadequate in a lot of indications. And These endpoints, this is what we're measuring in order to understand if this, if this new medicine is working and making an impact. Now, a traditional model might have been we'd go back to our environment and we'd think up maybe with some key opinion leaders in academia some new endpoint and do research to try to validate that, to show that it's really measuring something meaningful. Um, Last year, uh, in in, in more of a 21st century approach, we sat down together with the Alliance for Lupus Research. They brought in patients and, and others to share their experiences about what matters most to them. We co-developed an instrument using Apple's Research Kit framework, and now we've co-invested in a validation study to demonstrate that that new measurement that patients helped guide us and and informed what we were actually capturing, that we can then validate it and use it in research studies. And then the spirit of the GitHub universe of Research Kit, we can then make that available to other researchers and post it back for the research community. Mm -hmm. That's very different. Than what it would have looked like in a very insular environment just a couple of short years ago.
2: Absolutely, I agree with that. Let me just add to that a little bit. So we talk about wearables, right? I've got my Apple Watch on. I've got my nerd cred, um, and it's funny. I was on a stage recently talking a little bit about this this concept of fitness tracking, and I had written an article some years ago stating that the, the future of wearables would not be fitness tracking. I, I've been wrong so far, by the way. <laughs> but um, what's cool about Apple's Watch is in this health kit is is the amount of data, the quality of data that we have access to. And as that grows, and we see this huge population of these people wearing these things, um, you know, there's a couple things that go on. First of all, the people who are wearing these things, generally speaking, aren't the ones who need to be wearing these things, which is one challenge, right? So unless you're going to issue them to everybody in a, in a clinical trial, which is possible and I think is being done now. Um, but what ends up happening is is now you end up with this explosion of data, right? And one of the things that we've been guilty of is, as an industry and uh, is... Collecting data and not necessarily knowing what to do with it next, right? How do you make that valuable? And that's kind of the point around this this industry stack How do we create a new approach? What are the new? Levels that need to exist in order for this to be really actionable and make it make sense for people's everyday life,
1: you know, Michael hit on a um, On a data point that's been extremely important to me and it's been an area of a lot of uh, focus for my work and my team You mentioned that 88% of patients are willing to share access to their health data to to find new cures. And what's been remarkable is that number is stood up across multiple different surveys, whether it's um, enriched caregivers of patients at Boston Children's Hospital or highly activated patients at online communities like patients like me or more mainstream patients off the street. Time and again, nine out of 10 uh, consumers say that they're willing to share access to their data to help find new cures with one big, ginormous asterisk. There has to be trust. It has to be according to their permission and their wishes. Nine out of 10 is like this amazing number that we can only screw up by by messing up on trust. Um, But if we can get it right, it can be game-changing. Research is fueled by data. It's... It's why we do research studies. It's why we do clinical trials. The entire process is about generating data and communicating the output from those data, the different results, whether to regulators, payers, patients, providers. In a world going forward where patients are able to not only access their diverse health data, self-tracked, self-generated patient portals to be able to access their EHR data, when they're able to then share that data in trusted ways. That's a game-changing uh, future
2: state. I've got to do something, if I can, Michael. I apologize. We mentioned trust, and you can't say the word trust, and you can't talk about data democratization without a shout-out to Richard Waru and his work on trust with blockchain, right? So getting making this technological for a second. So trust is a function, right? You have to do it, right? So trust right now is a function of an intermediary or an organization, right? So the pharma industry, we have a bit of a trust issue, I think, with the general public. Uh, Some of it deserved, some of it not deserved. Uh, A lot of it is just lack of understanding right? and the fact that that information all goes someplace. I don't necessarily know where. I don't know who controls it. I don't know who has access to it. Um, The promise of technologies like blockchain allow us to allow patients to decide who gets access, who will I share with, under what conditions will I share, to create these automated smart contracts so that people truly have access and control over their data. And I know there's a lot of this going on right now. Some of it seems pie in the sky. Some of it is very, very real. Um, And I'll just I'll kind of close this statement with the, the Philip K. Dick quote, right? So the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed yet, right? So there's definitely pockets of this going on. The question is, is when we reach scale?
0: But I have to jump in and ask a question. So I mentioned earlier I was at the emergency room the other day, and. They, I typically go to uh, the, the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center system here in Boston. It's one of the Harvard teaching hospitals. And I went to the—forget um, the name of it—another uh, hospital here in Boston that's also part of the Harvard teaching system. Great care in both places. But their systems don't seem to talk with one another. And I said, oh, well, I see this in my, are you, you know, part of the BIDMC system? And they said, no, 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 we have our own portal where you can check it out and you can get all the information. And I said, but I already log in to that other place. I don't want a separate login. And why can't you guys just, like, make this work? So you guys are talking about blockchain and, like, these two major Harvard teaching hospitals that can't even, like... Get their systems to connect so that a patient can just see everything
2: in one place. Let me say this, and and this may be an unpopular statement, but uh, a lot of the EHR systems, a lot of software is software by and for software engineers. Let's be frank. Um, Having been one of those guys, I can say that, right? And it's when we get to a point where we can truly enable the people that we're trying to enable through technology. Uh, And that's one of the things that consumerization, I think, is doing. If You look at, at, at apps, and you look at wearables, and you look at the way that we're willing to engage with patients where they are, as opposed to forcing them into some model. Interoperability between EHRs and all sorts of other hospital systems is not a new problem by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I do believe it's a solvable problem, but it's going to take some time and some adoption. Uh, you know, I mentioned this thing about the future, right? So, blockchain has great potential and great promise. It's not there yet, but we can easily envision a future where you know, you truly have interoperability across health environments. So it, this is a digital transformation discussion, right? So how do you take an existing system? If you look at a lot of the systems you were just talking about, Michael, and your experience in the ER, they were basically digital paper. I mean, that's really what goes on. When we say digital transformation, we don't mean digital paper. We don't mean take the same form and put it on an iPad. That is not digital transformation. And a lot of what you're experiencing is probably due to that.
1: But let me let me sprinkle a little optimism for you here, Michael, because here, health data, uh, interoperability, I, I, I don't know what it's going to take to move that mountain. There are so many great initiatives out there and data standards initiatives, and I love to tell the data standards folks. I'm so glad they're there because I don't want to make data standards, but I want to be the beneficiary of them. But here, Here's my sign of hope. Michael, you, you are at multiple hospitals, and you have these different portals today. The common denominator is you. You have access to your disconnected health data. Mm-hmm. I've been at partners' hospitals. I have some data there. I've been at BU hospitals. I've been at physicians in New York at Mount Sinai and here in New Jersey at Atlantic Health. My life, my 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 life as a patient is spread pretty thin across a lot of different institutions. And some researchers may get it very excited to say, I'm gonna partner with the, the partners' health system and access their EH, EHR and find this great data, but you're only going to find a little slice about Craig Lipset as a patient in there. Uh-huh. If you want to get the depth and fidelity about me as a patient, you come to me to get it because I'm the common denominator across all those different connect disconnected systems. Meaningful use criteria um, tells those systems that uh, the owners of those systems, if you wanted to get financial incentives from the federal government. You got to make sure that I, me, the patient, I have access to that data, and so where where we can focus, and this is where research really gets patient centric in the very real sense, right? Where we can focus on empowering and enabling patients to have, to leverage that access and be able to share that diverse data in trusted ways. That's that game-changing opportunity. It doesn't have to wait for Beth Israel to be able to share their data with, you know, some other hospital right across the street.
2: Let me just add one more thing to that if I can. Um, So, the one thing that sort of pops up around this that I hear a lot is, do patients understand their own data? Do they understand the value of that data? Do they understand what that means, right? And so, the answer is, for the vast majority of human beings— uh, no, the answer is we don't know. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we that we know about ourselves, and the question is is where does that go? What do I do with that information? And so you're at this sort of you know this loggerhead on you know do we need to educate patients on what their data means? I would argue no, because you know I don't need to know how an internal combustion engine works to drive a car. I put the key in and I move. Um, so are there analogs that allow patients to engage? With the healthcare environment without necessarily knowing what all these particular numbers mean, but to have control over that data. So I think it's an interesting challenge. Uh, we're not there yet, um, but I think there's a lot of different interesting work being done around that. So patients are now aware of their data. They're aware that their data is being collected, they're aware that their data is being shared. Uh, so the question now is how do we create uh, a situation where they understand what that really means for them?
1: I, I often think about the um the analogy to my credit report, which is probably a bad analogy this year. Um, but that being said, the uh, consumers use their credit report to benefit themselves every day. Um, when they're buying a home, when they're trying to open a new credit card, they don't necessarily go through their credit report in granular detail. Maybe they do when there is a big data breach or data loss. They, they're they enlightened to to go take a closer look. But we have ways that consumers are able to use that data to to take action and to do things that are good for them or for others, even if they're not down with all the granular details. And I think that, uh, to Michael's point, there are some patients that want to get into the weeds. They want to understand every data point that's in their EHR, and they want to challenge if they disagree. There are other patients that aren't going to go that deep but still want to do amazing things when when they have that access, and we need to make sure that we have the tools to empower both.
0: So, How do we solve this data interoperability challenge? Um, There are so many parties that are involved. Uh, and Where do drug companies fit? Is there a role for drug companies, or is this about medical health records, and is it a government issue? How How do we even begin to address it?
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna put that research lens on because and, and then I'll I'll let Michael comment uh, if he has a more expansive view. Um, in the last presidential administration, had launched a uh, a really cool precision medicine initiative uh, that President Obama was very uh, uh, geeked out around. And one of the cornerstones of <clears throat> of that precision medicine initiative was was launching this million patient cohort study uh, here in in the United States. And actually, their aspiration is well over a million. Um, They call it the uh, All of Us Research Program. And this program is meant to collect uh, electronic health record data, biospecimens, uh, self track data, all this diverse data from a million plus uh, patients. But how are you going to do that, right? How are you going to get a million people to be able to share their data? Well, something that the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT kicked off uh, alongside of that program is something called Sync for Science, and they brought together uh, six or seven of the largest EHR providers in the U.S. I think there were a couple of holdouts, and they they worked with them to align on a data approach that may not solve all of health data interoperability, but at least gives a common denominator for patients to be able to share their data. For research use, so it doesn't solve all of the one-to-one connections of health data interoperability, but it solves the many-to-one of enabling all those different systems to be able to share their data to
2: advance research. Now, that's a brilliant point. I think there have been a bunch of different things that have happened. I know the UK had a uh, had a registry program uh, out of NHS. Uh, to collect, and they're one of the most data rich environments in the world, right? So, for a, a fairly small population, they have a tremendous amount of information about the, the people who live in that country in terms of health. Um, so, that's an interesting model. I think it's, it's really understanding from a technology standpoint what the right way to do this is, right? Um, you know, and I think initially people envisioned this massive data set you know, here's everything about everybody that sits in this one spot. I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case. I think it's going to be somewhat distributed, to your point, as it is today. Um, And I think the interoperability needs to change by the or change through the technology model. Uh, So right now, we still have these large monolithic systems that we expect to talk to each other. And I don't think that's going to be really sustainable. To your point, Um, how do you really get these these monstrous systems to talk to each other? It's not an easy thing to do. Um, so, it, does that mean a redesign? Does that mean a, a totally novel new technology? It, it may. Um, I think that the, at the end of the day, we need to not make perfect the enemy of good, and figure out how we can make incremental steps and changes towards something that's better than it was yesterday.
0: So, right now, then, where are we going? You guys are on the cutting edge, seeing seeing innovation. In patient experience. And maybe you can share with us what you're seeing, not not in the next 20 years, but in the next three years. What are we we likely to see? And and tell us why.
2: Sure. Uh, I'll get started actually. So it it begins with the increasing consumerization of of healthcare. And what I mean by that is that healthcare is one of these last bastions of non-consumerism, certainly in the in the US. You know, we've got about 4% of the world's population. We spend an awful lot of money on them. Uh, We don't necessarily have the right health outcomes um, compared to the rest of the world, certainly per capita. Um, And if you look at the way that we interact with health, again, it hasn't really changed. It's very very reactive. It's not very proactive, although there's some movement around that. So the question is, is how do we incent human behavior? How do we interact with patients on a daily basis, but not where it feels like this sort of doctor-patient relationship? How do we make them stakeholders in their health? And I think the way to do that is through technology. It's where they live. Um, you know, Craig and I had a conversation about this uh, some time ago about uh, the social structure for for humans, for patients, for consumers. They talk to each other, as it turns out, and we weren't unprepared for that. Um, and that's something you really need to think about and understand that that's yet another data stream, yet another touch point, yet another opportunity for us to engage patients. In not only their own healthcare, but also with their healthcare providers, their entire health circle, friends, family, patients like them, etc. So it's it's really opening up the spigot and saying, what are all the different ways that we can interact with these people today? So we can collect data through wearables, we can collect information through their sort of online personas, we can collect it directly through interaction with them. I know CMS is doing some work around uh, population health. Uh, if we have a, a phone conversation, twenty minutes uh, a month. Right. There's a reimbursement. The idea being that if patients are more engaged, they're more likely to be adherent. If they're more likely to be adherent, we're more likely to have better outcomes. If we've got better outcomes, we've got better cost structures. So all of this gets into play. And these are things that are happening today. So that's not a flying car conversation. This is a very, very real. This is what's going on today, tomorrow, next week.
1: You know, research is is if if healthcare is just starting to figure out patient experience matters research is is a click behind them and when you look at the the baseline experience for a patient in in a clinical research study today number 1 how do they even find the study right most f- patients tell us they want to learn about research studies from their physician from their treating physician it's who they trust and yet if that treating physician is not the investigator in that research study we know it's it, the odds are very low that that patient is ever going to learn about that trial the, the it goes back to what michael was just saying the incentives are misaligned cool. follow the free economics of clinical research the the treating physician of most patients has very little incentive to talk about research with their patient or to encourage them to be in a study that may be appropriate for them if that treating physician may actually lose the opportunity to provide follow-up care. Um, they, there are financial, very real financial incentives that are misaligned, but then continue to follow that journey of that patient now because, somehow or another, they found out about the trial. Now, they're coming in and out. That first visit, they're handed their 30-plus page informed consent, probably still a stack of paper on a clipboard. They have to go through that, and they, the, the, the intent there is to make sure that that patient is informed enough to make a proper decision about whether or not to participate in the study. But that's a lot of paperwork to have to go through on that journey. Yeah. All that, and the patient's not even in a trial yet. That next hurdle for them, they're going to go through some sort of screening process. And We know that the majority of patients who fail that screening process, they're done. They don't want to be, I mean, it's so much work to get to that stage that if they fail screening for one particular study, to any other industry, you'd say, this is an activated consumer. They're aware. They were engaged. They simply didn't match for this one study. I, at Pfizer, have well over 100 trials. And when you look on clinicaltrials.gov, there are thousands of open studies that are enrolling. And yet, if a patient fails screening for one They have to go so far back to step zero that it's defeating, and then just carry that forward. The baseline for patient experience today is ridiculously low. We're doing things in our organization right now. I mentioned, for instance, even just words mattering, calling people a participant rather than a subject, sending thank you notes to patients for participating making sure that they have access to study results from the trial in which they participated so they can learn just as we're learning, making sure that they can access their own data from that study so that if they just had a blood test that was done while they're in the trial, they don't have to have a copay and another needle stick to get another blood draw just because that first one lives in a study database and isn't necessarily open and accessible as it should be. There's a lot of experiential elements here that are, are, are pretty big fails right now. The technology and the process is there, though, whether it's letting patients participate more from home or finding other ways to make sure that information is accessible and participation is accessible. That's kind of the, the entry point where we are today. And I think that this theme about improving access and removing friction are going to be those key themes as we see these very Near-term incremental steps start to move us towards much more significant game changers. How do patients participate without ever having to schlep into a clinic, bring their own data, participate on their own terms, whether that means I like paper or a digital tool, whether that means I just want to be monitored from a, a sensor that's you know, not even on my body, whatever that may mean, how do we make sure our trials are more flexible and accommodating of patient preference?
2: Right. And again, this all comes down to one word to me, which is connectedness, right? So in the early part of your description, you talked about um, there's awareness, right? Which is I'm not connected. And then there's I'm connected, but there's low value, right? So I'm connected, but it's meaningless to me, right? At the end of the day, it comes down to that connectedness. Are we connecting dots in every aspect you look at millennials right 94 percent of millennials expect connectedness in every aspect of their life their home their car their wearables their phone everything that they do they want their world to follow them everywhere they go right if i want to watch netflix i want netflix to cater to what it is i want to see whether i'm on my phone my ipad my laptop my tv that's my expectation of the world and yet when i walk into a healthcare environment all bets are off nobody knows anything about me and in fact even if i tell you something about me 3 minutes later i have to have the same conversation with somebody else to tell you everything about me again right so we are it's it's this area where we're completely disconnected Um, it's very funny you may have heard me say this before right so I don't think healthcare is broken I think it's working exactly the way it was designed right but it was designed a long time ago so how do we how do we break through some of those connectedness issues and give people what they expect in every other area of their life yet don't experience in healthcare
1: just to build on that theme of connectedness we use this jargon to describe trials we call them uh, randomized controlled clinical trials and we have this this um, this This fiction belief that there's some sense of control. Um, (laughs) When we do a research study in a laboratory, maybe there are cages, but our humans are not in those cages, right? When we're in these clinical trial settings, the control turns into controlled chaos. People are living their lives, they're exposed to many different things, and they're connected. That notion that, for example, patients are You know, once upon a time, we might have worried that one patient talked to another in a waiting room while they were in a trial and maybe shared little anecdotes with one another. Today, we need to worry that the entire study is connecting in a a community online, or even more so in a private community that we can't even tap into or understand. So whether there's data to be learned from or cautions because, hey, maybe those patients are sharing tips and tricks on how to get into the study. And meet eligibility criteria because they want mom or dad in that new Alzheimer's trial. Or maybe they're sharing observations that may suggest a safety uh, concern, but, uh, you know, it's it, if somebody t- posts online that they had a, a headache after their last infusion, how many more people are going to think, oh, you know what, I, I might have had a headache, right? That's why we control these or used to be able to control them and keep people apart from one another. The connectedness that Michael's describing—that new reality—research studies have not kept pace.
0: We've got less than ten minutes left, and I want to talk about where this is all going. But I just have to tell you a brief story about my own experience. Seems like I've had a lot of experience with the healthcare system, but you know, we all have had uh, had these experiences. So I went to see. A doctor and I'm I'm fine, I'm like very healthy. But I went to see a doctor about something and he said, and this is like a big guy in the hospital and some, you know, the chair of some department. And he said to me, We have a study that we wanna you can you can help humanity. We want you to participate in a study that's gonna track people just like you. I said, Fine, I wanna help humanity, and he said, Great, because this is really nothing. So then, you know, he said, I'm going to send the person in. You can sign the form and, you know, this is going to be great. So I waited 20 minutes and I get very impatient when I wait 20 minutes because my time actually, I think, is valuable. Maybe it was half an hour. Finally, the woman comes in and she said, okay, here's the form. Well, the form is like, and she said, I'm going to walk you through. The form is like 25 pages long and she's reading it to me and she said, sign here, sign here. I said, whoa, 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 wait a second. I'm not going to sign something this like 30 page document that's a contract without Reading it, checking it out.
2: This is what informed consent is, right? So it's it's uh, it's our attempt to try to describe to you what you're getting yourself into. And uh, there's the there's the the message. And then there's the way that we deliver that message. And then there's the the you know your ability to understand that and interact with it. Um, it's very interesting. So it's you know so Michael, you washed out, right? So obviously you didn't make it. You weren't enrolled. Um, but you know it's it's a really interesting challenge because what we're asking patients to do. Is in engaging with us around this type of research is take risks, right? So there is some risk to this, right? So you took a risk when you cut yourself, you took a risk going to the ER, right? Because you don't know, you could get immersive, you can have a staph infection, right? There's risk to everything that we do. And so the question is, is how do we adequately connect the dots for patients, for people, so that they understand the pros and cons of all this? And how do we do it in such a way that they understand the value? Of what it is they're giving and getting in return. And I I think that we've mostly steamrolled over them, right? So we understand the value prop in every other aspect of the industry, uh, yet patients are wholly sort of disconnected from that. And the best that we hope to do is we hand them a 30 page clipboard uh, with an informed consent and just say, sign here and moving on. So there are definitely some experience challenges there that we're working on. Listen, there are some great solutions out there that are far better than the experience that you had. Um, and it's continuing to iterate and get better and better. So uh, on behalf of healthcare, I apologize for that. <laughs> um, but it's, it's certainly not unique.
1: The idea of moving from paper to, uh, to tablet for consent, it, this is one of the few areas where there's a clear path forward. There's FDA guidance on the topic. There are a lot of companies that are starting to do it, including my own in the U.S. and in other other regions, we know from the data that when patients are going through a consent process that's enabled through technology, they retain the information longer. They're making a better informed decision as a result. They're more likely to stay in the study. And from us, from, from, from a compliance perspective, we see fewer protocol deviations because every time somebody forgets to sign or writes the wrong date or sign the wrong version of a consent, that's a problem to us and we have to go out and fix it and when we're using technology that problem isn't there but you know look at the adoption curves for these they're slow and painful despite all of those great reasons that I just I just mentioned now I don't view informed consent as a competitive differentiator I don't want you know a patient in a Pfizer trial to be any more or less informed than a patient in any of anyone else's trial they should all be well informed but I will say this to my peers in the industry, if a patient's in a waiting room, and if two patients are in the waiting room, and the one from my study is handed an iPad and is going through with video and multimedia and really understanding, and your patient's getting still getting a clipboard with 30 pages, think about the decisions that those patients are going to make when they just see each other interacting in those different ways. And that's their that's their welcome to the trial, right? That was the first thing you were handed.
2: This is the five-degree problem, right? So if you're a 5 degrees at the very beginning of a process, you're miles away at the end, right? So anything that we can do upstream has profound impacts downstream. And if people had an appreciation, a true appreciation for the cost, the complexity, the challenges, the time uh, involved in, in research, in bringing drugs to market, if we did a better job up front of engaging them, connecting them, showing them how we can make you know, their life a little bit better, the lives of others a little bit better up front we'd have profound impact in the back end. And we're starting to see bits and pieces of that. I know certainly within our organization, we've got a number of different technologies and solutions that we use for that exact point, right? How can we better engage people early on to make sure that you don't wash out, right? How expensive is it when you lose a patient, right? It's ridiculous. Uh, What happens when we don't have sites that recruit according to the numbers that we need to recruit, which is a very, very common problem. So what are the things that we can do to accelerate? Technology is part of that. Communication is a part of that. So it's it's really thinking about what can we do up front to make sure that we don't have massive challenges later on.
0: Okay. Well I've never, I have to say I have never had anybody apologize on behalf of the entire healthcare system. So apology accepted, and I really do appreciate that.
2: I'm sure Uh, I'll get the speech on that.
0: (laughs) But uh, but we are just about out of time and I I just want to ask you. Each and we 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 could go on for another hour, but we won't. We're we, are, we are really out of time. But in a tweet kind of soundbite, I'll ask each of you to share with us your prescription for the healthcare industry. And uh, Michael, you started, and so or rather, Craig, you started, and so maybe we'll ask Michael and then ask Craig. Uh, you can close us off.
2: My prescription for healthcare, huh? Um, that's a, it's a huge industry. It's a huge, it's a huge problem, right? And it's not one problem. It's a series of problems. And so I'll go back to my earlier answer, right? So the answer is, is how do we better connect healthcare? Um, and that means including patients. That means making sure that they understand what that means to be connected. Uh, it means that they're active participants in their own health in every way with their healthcare provider on their own. It means making sure adherence works. So it's how do we leverage technology? in my case, to better connect patients to the healthcare environment and the healthcare environment to patients. That's what it is for me.
0: Okay. And it looks like Craig Lipsit, you're gonna get the last word. So how do we what what's your prescription for healthcare?
1: Well I'm gonna narrow my prescription down at the very least to those that are trying to develop new cures and new medicines. We have to remove the friction, all that redundancy and having people re-enter data and all that burden. Get rid of the friction. And make our trials fit for participant. Make sure that the burden isn't on the patient to try to figure out how to navigate and do things because it's easier for us, but that we're doing the extra burden so that patients can participate in ways that work for them.
0: I love that uh, patient centric and take the burden off the patient. Well, and with that we. Have drawn to a close on episode number 265 of CXO Talk. We have been speaking with Craig Lipsett from Pfizer and with Michael DePalma from IQVIA. What an interesting discussion, and thank you both. And thanks everybody for joining. As we go out, we have a special treat. Now, Michael, you are sitting in what looks like a studio, so tell us what's going on there.
2: That that is exactly what I'm sitting in. I'm sitting in my home studio, so I've got some toys behind me, and uh, I'm a man of many passions. This happens to be one, so it's not just all healthcare. Uh, I get to make music too,
0: and you're going to make music for us as we go out.
2: Play us out, okay? I'll play us out.
0: Absolutely,
1: thank you,
2: Michael. As an undergrad, undergrad
1: music major, I'm I'm excited to end our show this way. <laughs>